The Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Today's podcast is on common fractures of the midfoot and forefoot. I'd like to welcome Dr. Nick Viennes to our podcast, Fellowship Trained in Foot and Ankle. Pleasure to have you on the podcast. Absolutely. The tarsal bones comprise the midfoot and the forefoot would be metatarsals and toes. And, you know, there are so many different fractures that you can have. Some are obvious, some not so obvious. Hoping you might go through some of those, maybe talk a little bit about Lisfranc injuries and that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. Some of these are very benign, no big deal kind of injuries. Some of them... Uh, even if it's in the same bone, can be a very big deal. You know, a navicular body fracture, particularly if it's in the mid-substance like uh, of the navicular, that can be very difficult to get to heal. Um, you know, it could be pretty aggressive about it. Doesn't necessarily mean it needs surgery, but it might delayed healing of those really common. You know, and that kind of thing uh, often needs a CT scan, or if you're worried about a navicular fracture, you don't see it, you might get an MRI. Again, we'll probably talk about that later, but, um, that's a very different from the little avulsion or little fleck fracture. Another thing that's very common in the foot is called an accessory navicular. Accessory naviculars come in a wide variety. Somebody may have a little tiny piece of bone that lives in the posterior tibial tendon that, uh, you barely even see on an x-ray and other people might have a big whopping piece of bone that looks like this giant prominence in their foot often mistaken for a fracture but you can have an acute fracture that can fool people that it's an accessory navicular too or, or sometimes you have an accessory navicular that's been acutely injured and, and that synchondrosis between the accessory bone and the more normal navicular has sort of gotten torn. You can think of it like that. But but I've also seen people have a true navicular body fracture and an accessory navicular, and they've been blown off and saying, oh, well, it's just an accessory navicular. You're, you're fine. It'll get better. And really, on an MRI, they, they didn't light up at the accessory navicular at all. It was a mid, mid-body navicular fracture. Mm-hmm. You know, the cuboid is another one uh, on the lateral part of the foot that it can get what's called a nutcracker fracture is sort of a classic uh, example of a fracture that can be a bad problem. And, and the, the name of the fracture sort of alludes to the mechanism, you know, the foot often gets uh, shifted in a, you know, laterally and literally cracks that nut of the cuboid and, and then shortens the cuboid. So then that can be a problem. Not only is it a comminuted fracture and can hurt, but is, um, you end up with a short lateral column of the foot and, and that can go on to cause problems. And that, that sort of mechanism is usually associated with a Lisfranc injury. So you might not have any other signs of a fracture in the more medial or middle column of the foot, but, but you got to know to look for that or be worried about that, you know, and in the end of the day, if people remember nothing else, it's um, don't, don't miss a Lisfranc injury and, at least be thinking about it all the time when somebody comes in with foot problem because mm-hmm. you know, missing those can end up becoming a big 
disaster for the patient or even for the provider. I've seen a few of those by no means as many as you have, but it seems like the, the, the presentation that's exaggerated compared to what you would think from a normal foot sprain. It often is. It often is, uh, particularly for the traumatic ones, but you know, there's a, the isolated ligamentous Liz Frank injury, or so-called sports Liz Frank injury, mm-hmm. is often missed, and you know because people can walk on it. They don't have a giant foot. They don't necessarily have plantar ecchymosis. It's more of a subtle thing and and subtle instability, but often you can pick it up if you again you know to look for it. You palpate in the right area, and weight bearing X-rays and and in our clinic um, routinely we'll get uh, AP x-rays of the bilateral feet so that you've got the normal foot right there looking at you and the other foot, you know, at the same time on the same x-ray so you can compare side to side. And, and sometimes, you know, that second metatarsal medial edge of it will line up with the middle cuneiform and it looks fine. But then you look at the patient's other side and you realize, oh man, you could drive a truck through this one side and the other side is a lot more narrow. So it's not as simple as seeing a step off. Um, sometimes it's just a generalized widening in the foot um, and, and midfoot fractures, you know, those bones, there's a lot of little bones and they all sort of overlap. So on, a, on standard x-rays, you're often never getting a true perpendicular view of all of all these bones. So you can miss breaks very easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if on an MRI or CT, they're obvious. I mean, that happens all the time. So having a fairly low threshold for getting advanced imaging is important there. Again, weight bearing x-rays is key and non-weight bearing x-ray in the foot can be almost useless. Um, particularly if the patient walks into the clinic putting weight on their foot, there's zero reason to not get a weight-bearing x-ray. And, and it can completely change the way you manage things or the ability to see injury. Mm-hmm. That's really, really key. Orthopedic Foot and Ankle Society, other other uh, orthopedic surgeons like me, subspecialists, that's our specialty group. And it's put out like position statement even saying how weight-bearing x-rays of the foot whenever possible are absolutely standard of care. So that's another thing to ab- absolutely take home is get weight-bearing x-rays of the foot. Yeah, it completely changes things. And and for all those listening, that goes for all weight-bearing joints uh, yep. in our practice anyway. Uh, definitely get weight-bearing x-rays, very important. Forefoot, metatarsals and toes. Metatarsals, uh, you know, things like Jones fractures, stress fractures. What do you think about that? So a Jones fracture itself really refers to the base of the proximal part of the fifth metatarsal and and it's divided up into zones so the zone one fracture would, would mean that the the break goes into that uh, articulation with the uh, cuboid so it's like a fifth tarsal metatarsal joint uh, injury or we call often those avulsion fractures or sometimes they've been called dancers fractures and those typically do really well they they don't need to be um made non-weight bearing and casted and told that the patient needs surgery most of the time. Now, if uh, they tend to not get very displaced, although occasionally they'll be pretty displaced and, you know, make a lateral prominence or a plantar prominence and the, or rotates, the fracture might rotate. And those are the times when sometimes we'll think about fixing it. Um, but you'd be surprised that a lot of folks who have a 
kind of bad looking x-ray with his own one fracture actually have minimal symptoms and do really well. So mm-hmm. it, it's got to be pretty bad for me to, to want to go in there and, and really be aggressive surgically for one of those fifth metatarsal fractures. And I tell my patients that a lot of times you, you might have a funny looking x-ray, but no symptoms. So they end up with a fibrous non-union. So mm-hmm. again, zone one, very different from the zone two injury, which is when the fracture goes into that uh, sort of the border where the fourth metatarsal and the fifth metatarsal meet. Uh, and then you go a little more distal to that past where the fourth and fifth are, and you get the zone three injury. Zone two and three, really just think of them as the same. They're both not good. Technically, the Jones injury is a zone two, and a, the zone three we often just call more of a stress fracture, but you really treat them the same. They Neither one likes to heal which is, again, very different from the fifth metatarsal shaft fracture, which those tend to do really pretty well. Again, a weight-bearing x-ray for that is really helpful. One of the few times we'll think about fixing one of those or or being a little more aggressive is if the patient has a lot of plantar displacement. So if the, the fracture really is sort of angled downwards, that can be a problem because patients can end up with a bony prominence there that is uncomfortable and and it's a lot harder to deal with after the fact um, when you could have just maybe fixed it with a little tiny screws or maybe a plate to get the bone straight again um, plantarly. It's not as much of an issue when you're looking at an AP x-ray if it's out of alignment as long as it's nothing crazy Um, but on that lateral view weight bearing is the one to really care about. Mm -hmm. And along those lines you know second Second metatarsal, third metatarsal, fourth metatarsal neck fractures, fifth metatarsal neck fracture, all are very common. Twisting injuries, something falling on the foot, stubbing a toe uh, are are often mechanisms for that. Um, Typically, those can do really well. Again, plantar displacement tends to be the thing you worry about, but they don't really need to be pinned or anything very commonly. Sometimes they do, particularly if somebody has a high-energy injury and um, a bunch of midfoot fractures and then forefoot metatarsal neck fractures. That's a different injury. That's a different ball game. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the isolated metatarsal neck fractures, those tend to do well. Those are often stress fractures too. So something sent to me, it's not really accurate. When people call a non-displaced fracture a stress fracture when, when the patient had a trauma, well, it's not a stress fracture if they had trauma. So um, now you can have a stress fracture that completes itself because of a trauma. And again, that's a different thing. You have an acute fracture on the top of a stress fracture that was sort of brewing. Um, and again, that's often, you see that in the fifth metatarsal. So something to look for, again, when somebody has one of those zone three fractures, particularly we see that a lot, um, you know, they may have stepped in a hole and had a twist and felt the pop or stepped off a curb. And, and say that they never really hurt before, but you look at their x-ray and their cortex is really thick and they've got a little hump there that was developing. And it was their body's way of trying to make new bone and try to heal something. And then it just went on and, and cracked. And you know, those again are a lot harder to get better without surgery. It can happen, you can heal them, but it can be a lot harder. So that's a setting where you have a stress fracture that turned into an acute fracture. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's, those are kind of the big ones to really think about. This is great. There's so many things. We're covering such a broad category. Metatarsals and toes. And I know you don't get too excited about toe fractures. You know, the phalanx fractures. Yeah, I mean, usually patients do really well with those. Now, if you have a very angulated 
a phalanx fracture or a toe dislocation, you know, typically you're going to want to try to make that better and realign it. Um, often it's as simple as just make the toe look straight again, you know, pulling on it or taping it to the other toes. I think buddy taping, it's not wrong to buddy tape a toe to the other toes, but often it's um, not necessary. And sometimes patients actually feel worse doing it because they're just messing with their toe all the time. But the big thing with that is you want to make sure somebody's putting a little piece of gauze, something thin, just help absorb the moisture between the toes so that they don't end up with a, a maceration and ulcer. And you want to make sure they're going to check it and change it every day or so, because otherwise you can turn a benign thing into a big mess if, you know, they've had their toe taped for two weeks and then, and then they, you take it off and they've got an ulcer between their toes. That, that doesn't tend to go over well. Absolutely. So those are those are the big things. And then the, the last one I definitely want to make sure to point out would be the, you know, kid. So a big toe fracture is often the one we see. And, and I know Sam has seen these, uh, you know, a kid might stub their toe running outside or riding their bike barefoot or in flip flops and, and uh, their big toe hurts and it's bleeding at the nail. And then you get an x-ray and, and they've got open physes and, and you see, oh, that looks kind of funny. Or there's a little fleck of bone off on the lateral view at their big toe distal phalanx at the, at the growth plate. Or it might look like a V, like the, the plantar part is narrow and the dorsal part is wide. And the reason is, is that that nail bed is, lives right over where the, the physis is. And, and what happens is you get that flexion injury it gaps open at the physis and sort of pulls that nail into the physis and then it's blocking it from being reduced. And not only is it blocking it from being reduced, but it acts sort of like a easy highway for infection up into the, into the bone. And then you can, again, turn it, that can turn into a mess. So, you know, Seymour fractures, we call that, mm -hmm. um, you know, happens in the hand also, but those often end up needing surgery. Uh, and again, sooner than later. So that's something to always think about if you ever see a, a toe injury, particularly the big toe, and there's some bleeding at the nail and a big hematoma there. And it, it's often more than meets the eye. So definitely uh, think about that. Again, that's one of those that people often see but don't realize it. And um, if you don't know the look, then you're not going to ever catch it. Great, great. That's great information. That's a great rule of thumb for people to follow. What are just some common indications for surgery versus conservative management. You know, Liz Frank injuries, displaced Liz Frank injuries, sometimes are ligamentous, not necessarily just fractures. You know, those are typically going to be surgical injuries. Um, so those midfoot injuries, um, a cuboid injury that, you know, you have obvious loss of height of that lateral column. I mean, those often need surgery even if it's an isolated injury. But again, those often aren't isolated. It may look isolated uh, on the x-ray, but really it's a bunch of ligamentous injuries, more medial on the foot. And those are pretty bad. I mean, sometimes patients even need to get treated definitively with an external fixator to get their foot out to length. And um, while that crushed bone can uh, can heal and often they need to get bone grafted, et cetera. So that, that can be a big deal. Mm -hmm. Zone one, fifth metatarsal fractures, again, very, very, very common and very, very rare that they really need to get fixed. 
even the ones that are displaced often surprisingly can do well without surgery, but it's not a never thing as far as surgery goes. If you have a pretty big piece or it's rotated or again, plantarly displaced, et cetera, it can be, it can be reasonable to fix it. Zone two and three, uh, often are a bit more aggressive about it. And honestly, just have the conversation with the patient about rates and risks of uh, it taking a long time to heal, higher rate of refracture with with uh, non-surgical treatment. But even with surgery, they don't necessarily heal. There's been many high-level, high-profile professional athletes have had to have two and three surgeries or more to get their their uh, Jones fracture to heal. So you you know for for sure people wanted that thing to heal the first time. And if it didn't heal, you know, after one or two surgeries, you know, that's just proved that it's hard to heal because certainly they were getting everything that exists thrown out their fracture. And, and if it still didn't heal, then that's a problem. But those are the, those are the ones you might think about healing. Now, who do you fix them in? You know, the, the classic sort of test question answer would be a high level athlete. So a college athlete, or maybe a high school athlete who's, who's a, a big recruit getting ready to get a scholarship or, uh, you know, a pro athlete, but, you know, I think that it's, it's very reasonable to extend those indications to really anybody who needs to be on their feet, um, needs to be on their feet for their job, whether it's a construction worker or someone who owns their own business and just needs to be on their feet, you know, they can't necessarily be off their feet for six months to try to get the thing to heal. And then it doesn't heal. And then they turn around and have to have surgery anyway. So I think those are the kind of the conversations that you you would have and, and um, the reasons we think about fixing it. Ones that look very stress fracture related are often uh, surgical. Navicular fractures definitely would be uh, one that, you know, stress fractures from navicular don't necessarily have to have surgery, but often do better with it um, and can take a long time to heal. Again, many pro athletes, uh, their careers have been ended by navicular stress fractures. Mm-hmm. I definitely have to consider nail bed injuries and even open fractures. So, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, my antibiotics, washing it out, etc. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, Doctor Bienz, I really appreciate your time being on the Ortho PAC podcast and great information. Uh, I know our listeners are going to enjoy this, and thank you so much for your time. Of course, thanks, Sam. Please visit paos.org where members can purchase virtual CME content. This is accessed by clicking on the CME tab on the title bar following the drop-down, which is the Learning Center. For non-members, please visit the aapa.org website for PAOS virtual content.